0: Hey there, I'm Jo and this is Looking Outside, the podcast that explores new perspectives beyond the familiar. I am a CPG innovator and with this show I'm seeking a fresh take on business topics with some of the most influential and original thinkers. If you find yourself curiously peeking over the fence at what is happening outside your market, industry or field of knowledge, then this show will help you to explore more of that. Everyone, welcome back to Looking Outside. Guess what? Today is a really special episode. Today marks the last episode of the very first season of Looking Outside. So, a part of the reason that this is such a special show is I have invited one of the closest people in my life to the conversation. But trust me when I say this is one impressive woman and one amazing storyteller. Today we are looking outside storytelling with Dr. Belinda Calderon, welcome, Belinda.
1: Thank you so much, Joe. I'm beyond excited to be on your podcast.
0: We've been talking about recording a podcast together for years. Since way back in Melbourne, I remember we were sitting at a restaurant. We were like, "What? What should we talk about?"
1: Oh, I remember that conversation too. It's happening. <laughs>
0: So, for the record, I do naturally have a nickname for Belinda, but I'm going to keep it professional today, so I'm going to, I'm going to call you Belinda, so please don't be offended. <laughs> not at all. So, Belinda, aside from being a wonderful human being, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: So, look, I've been pretty obsessed with the power of words since I was a child. Uh, so, it's, it's not too surprising when I went to university, I ended up studying literature and linguistics. I went on to do a PhD in literature and was researching and teaching literature to undergraduates. But of course, Joe, like all good stories, it takes a twist. (laughs) (laughs) And I I came to realize that what I was really passionate about was helping my fellow academics uh, to tell the story of their research project to secure funding that progresses their work. So today uh, I am Monash University's philanthropic proposals manager. And what that means is I go out and I consult with all the researchers across the university doing different projects and particularly ones that have the potential for a real social impact. And we, we bring it all together in a really inspiring proposal uh, for passionate philanthropists so those are people out there who are giving of uh, their funding for nothing at all in return just because they want to make a difference
0: that's so incredible. and I love how you've told the, the the background of what you do with a narrative, so starting with when you were a child through to what you ended up studying and now moving into the academic world. I'm really curious. How have you found that transition and what is it about the academic world aside from the role that you're you're in specifically, which sounds incredible, that is really like connected with you and that passion that you have for writing?
1: Mm-hmm what a good question yeah it's been a really interesting transition you know from being an academic who is i guess analyzing and critiquing stories and looking at the history of stories um, to that really hands-on writing you know a lot of people in academia who love researching literature actually don't really like writing (laughs) uh, ironically (laughs) So it just so happens I love both Um, and um, there's something really special, I think, about crafting sentences and paragraphs and proposals that, you know, are are going out there in the world and making an impact. Um, Not to say, of course, that, you know, academia doesn't make an impact but There's something I really love about knowing that there's going to be um, quite an immediate and tangible change
0: in people's lives. You have a doctorate in the English language and literature. Let's talk about literature for a moment then. So, it's considered to be, yeah, you know, everything from prose fiction, poetry, drama. In essence, you know, people talk about literature as an art form, um, but we know that you know the the written art form actually originally started orally as stories told across all parts of the world so there's been this evolution in storytelling so when when you've looked at that and that change what's something that you've you've sort of been surprised by there's been um an aha moment for you many people believe that storytelling
1: actually developed not long after language When we're kind of getting, say, 30,000 years ago, we start to see like things like cave paintings coming up. And, you know, they often represented, you know, albeit a very simple story. And then, of course, we come to written stories, you know, everything changes. Uh, of course, there's always disagreement among scholars about when the first story was written for various reasons, but you know, generally one of the first written stories, uh, we're looking about 4,000 years ago, and uh, that, if anyone's interested, is the Epic of Gilgamesh, <laughs> which was written on clay tablets. Mm. Imagine the uh, tedious work involved in that joke. <laughs> but what I would say then I think that really revolutionised written stories is then we figured out how to mass produce books and that's when we're looking in the 1400s um, with uh, good old Johann Gutenberg creating a very fast mechanical printing press and I feel like it's at that point Storytelling was really revolutionized. And then I think, you know, let's not forget then getting into like the late 1800s, were able to create motion pictures. And, you know, that's another form of storytelling in itself. Humans just love stories. We, we've just been telling them through our whole history.
0: Mm, it's so true. And, what I really love is that you took us from like book, well, from clay to books to movies, and then even songs are built around a narrative structure in a lot of ways. And we're starting to see stories just, you know, proliferate through our entire culture in in so many different ways, which is which is really fascinating. And what you said really. It made me think about the origins of storytelling. Was storytelling more originally about passing on a memory, or passing on a tradition within smaller circles? Whereas now, storytelling is much more of the art of persuasion.
1: Mm-hmm. I just find it absolutely amazing that uh, the human brain is really wired to respond to stories. Um, I love looking at the neuroscience of it. Um, What we know is that when we're hearing um, a story, especially if it's a bit engaging or emotionally charged, a lot of things are happening in our brains. So like the neural activity is becoming really active. People say that in MRIs, it's like the brain lights up. Dopamine is being released, and then our brain activity is starting to mirror the brain activity of the storyteller, which I think is just wild. And oxytocin is released, which helps us feel empathy and connection. So I think based on a lot of that, people have said, okay, well, if our brains are really wired to respond to stories, um, what exactly is the purpose? And what we see here is that number one it's remembering things which you can imagine for survival and progress that's actually essential that we remember what we tell each other and then there's also this connection empathy element to
0: it it seems to bind us together And I love what you said about creating empathy. So there was a bit that I was reading um, in preparation for this podcast, obviously, because I'm not an expert on this topic, but that's why you're here. Um, psychologists were talking about the benefit of understanding other people through stories. So that ability to dimensionalize a human being through... A narrative is obviously much more powerful to be able to connect with people that potentially have contrasting perspectives to us, that have a different experience, different culture, um, you know, different opinion, which which we know is obviously you know a huge tension point in a lot of the western parts of the world at the moment. Um, much more powerful than a data point or a fact. Which is really interesting for me because also in that business marketing world, we always talk about the power of numbers and, uh, you know, that that cash is king and the numbers speak for themselves and a data point is usually like at the heart of um, a proposal or a persuasive piece of writing. But actually, should we be thinking much more about using stories inside of business?
1: And I think what you just said there, Joe is so important in terms of, you know, some of the division we're seeing in the world, listen to the stories of others, whether that is orally, reading a book, uh, watching films and series, just taking in stories from people who've had a different life than you have, um, stories from other countries and cultures. You know, I think if we could all hold space a bit more for each other's stories right now, the world would actually be a must much better place to live. Um, but, yes, I 100% in um, my own work, you know, statistics obviously um, very important, I think, for um, convincing the rational mind, I guess I would say. But I feel like if you don't have those story elements, uh, then you're, you're really
0: missing out. So what's something that you think that people really sort of – you know, don't do very well or, or um, could be leveraging more.
1: When I'm thinking about storytelling and what are the important elements and what are the pitfalls, I like to look at it at both, I guess you'd say a macro and a micro level. So at the macro level, I'm kind of thinking about are all the parts of the story present? Something I find a lot when I'm, for example, getting a, a draft from a researcher is that often all the parts of the story are not there. At least in my line of work, I find that the start and the end of the story are often missing. Mm. And something else in terms of the macro level that I think is absolutely vital that I see all the time, might sound a bit weird, but I always say, keep walking forwards along your story path. Mm. What I find a lot is people starting to move through this sequence, but then starting to go back and forwards. They may have finished their part about the challenge Mm. and then they get into their solution, but then they start talking about the challenge again. (laughs) It's actually really common. And even the other way around, you know, you started talking about the solution before you've properly covered the challenge. Mm. Um, so if you imagine someone walking along a path it's like they're kind of walking backwards and forwards constantly (laughs) and then I guess getting down to the micro level uh you know keeping your reader engaged um you're wanting to add story elements throughout the document so and I guess I would say my main two tips are number one mention humans (laughs) number two paint a picture with details So just an example of how you might do that um, is by including little scenarios, um, either of the status quo or what the future could look like. Uh, So for example, I was uh, working on a great proposal uh, for a researcher doing epilepsy research. And he was hoping he could create a wearable device that would alert you if you're about to have an epileptic seizure. It's quite amazing. Mm. I decided to paint, a, a, you know, not too long, just a brief scenario of, you know, a gentleman in his 20s named Andrew who's, you know, he's waking up in the morning, he's having his morning smoothie, he's getting in the shower and then a little patch on his shoulder starts beeping telling him he's about to have a seizure. He gets out of the very slippery, very dangerous shower, (laughs) uh, runs into his bedroom and lies down in the middle of the floor with a pillow, which is the safest thing you can do. Uh, Then the device is sending text messages to his family right now while this is happening, so they know what's happening. Uh, And while he has the seizure, the device is actually recording all of his brain data and automatically sending it to his doctor so they can talk about
0: it when he goes in there.
1: The more concrete details that people can imagine in their minds, the better.
0: I love that you talk about bringing the human being, like painting a, a picture of Andrew and his life. I mean, that's probably like such a clear moment in my mind from our conversation. that Again, it just proves the point that you were making earlier. But humanizing... Um, People really understanding their their day or understanding their tensions and their pain points is so so important, but also so powerful. Then for you to be able to leverage that when you're communicating something inside of a business and being able to do that in a beautiful, eloquent way, like Bindi has just now. So, so Bindi, Bindi, oh my goodness. Okay. Secrets out. (laughs) (laughs) Secrets out. Belinda. Cats out of the bag. (laughs) Cats out of the bag. Um, Dr. Belinda, uh, obviously you have studied storytelling and literature. So, I'm really curious when you were in that state of your life, when you were studying all of this, what was, what was one thing when you were sort of digging into this topic that, you know, really surprised you? Or for, so for fairy tales, for example, when you were studying that?
1: Yes, I did write a thesis on fairy tales, believe it or not. <laughs> I think what really surprised me the most about digging into fairy tales was I did not realize that it was originally a genre for adults rather hmm. than children. And I I know a lot of people would be familiar perhaps with the Grimm's, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I'm looking all the way back like say 1500s, you know, and uh, at that point they were
0: such an important part of adult life. Were they like warnings? Is that what they were? Were they warnings for people to live by a certain moral code? Well, that's funny you say that because originally when they were
1: aimed more at adults, it was a lot more about just good old-fashioned entertainment. Okay. And then when they start to be directed at children, uh, all this morality comes in. Mm. Uh, So it was very interesting to see some of the older ones, I mean, really quite bawdy, I would say, and things (laughs) you would not be telling a child at all. (laughs) Uh, So I think that transition from adults to children as an audience was absolutely fascinating and probably another thing that was really interesting that I didn't expect so we hear all the time the story well the story within the story of uh, fairy tales being uh, I guess in existence for thousands of years as oral tales Mm. and then being written down Mm. but very surprisingly that wasn't the case. They actually have a really specific origin in the 1500s in Italy. Um, Good old Giovan Francesco Straparola. (laughs) What was really surprising and I think what led to this idea of, oh, it must have all been oral, was that we kind of see very similar collections of stories in three different points in Western Europe. So the one I just spoke of, the 1500s in Italy, then we see uh, fairy tales boom again in the 1700s in France. Uh, people probably know Charles Perrault as the most prominent author there, but there were many others. And then moving through to the 1800s in Germany with the Grimms, we see them explode again. Those three periods, the tales are incredibly similar to each other. So it was this idea of this ocean of oral stories that was just captured at three different points in
0: time. So what's what's the reason for that then? Why are they so similar? What we found
1: out later with the newer research is that the French people, uh, the French authors, read all of the Italian authors and – decided to copy a lot of what they were (laughs) saying. Because in in those days, of course, copyright was very different. It was totally Mm -hmm. acceptable to uh, adapt someone's tale, even if it was (laughs) very similar. And we have diary entries now from these authors saying, yeah, I loved reading those stories and I really enjoyed adapting them myself. And then when we get to the Grimm's, it's very interesting because... They did go around and collect oral stories from a few different families in their town. But what we then found out was that a main family that told them stories was French in origin, Mm. and they had read all of the French tales, (laughs) and they were conveying them orally to the Brothers Grimm, and so they got written down again. Oh, gosh, how fascinating. It is crazy, but it also makes you think, I think, about the the interplay between literary and oral storytelling since the written form began. You Mm. know, there's almost this interesting back and forth of Chinese whispers between the two.
0: Well, it's also fascinating because I'm thinking about the – the um, let's say recycled stories that are being told now in today's world they contain you know moral messages that are more relevant to our culture and you know particularly in the western world there's so much of that culturally important values from the western world that are starting to come through into movies even into disney movies and there's like this tussle in the audience of you know Keep, keep, either keep that out of my stories or hey we need to see more of that reflected because they should be representing today's world and so what's really interesting is that you know what you were saying was that actually we're talking about keeping the stories pure but they were almost never pure they were always sort of adapted from one to the other do, do stories have to evolve based on point in time and the culture of society at that point I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Jo. Uh,
1: it is definitely true that there is that idea of the pure uh, original story, but you're right. I think through my research, that idea has really been uh, shattered. A lot of the remakes that are coming forward are in response to what I would call some of the more recent uh and their ideologies like the Grimm's, uh, which of course, you know, for example, might not show uh, women in positions of strength or power or, you know, might be things. Um, Very old hat when it comes to their ideologies. And so, you know, we've got things like, even like the Snow White and the Huntsman, where Snow White is galloping along on a horse with in armour with a sword. Well what's funny about that is that when we go quite far back uh, to some of these French and Italian tales, we've actually got women doing those things in those tales. Uh, And we've got all, all sorts of, I suppose, ideologies that we're apparently trying to bring back now without knowing it.
0: lot of this feels, like you said, very, very cyclical. So how much of storytelling then is about bringing back, you know, familiar tropes and familiar icons and that, that element of familiarity, even in the structure of start, middle, end, hero, villain. Um, is that, is that really important to maintain inside of storytelling? And
1: that was something that I focused a lot on in my research, was looking at the socio-historical factors influencing stories at different points in their history. And I think we can't really
0: see stories clearly without seeing their context sometimes. That's a really good point. I think context is so important. And I mean, even now we're having conversations about, um, I actually had this as a question down for you, believe it or not, um, about separating... Oh, this is contentious. Separating stories from the authors. So, I mean, actually that question might seem really silly now that you've just taken me through the, the history of fairy tales and how, you know, the authors and the copyright and everything was sort of shifting. Um, but particularly in today's world, I feel like the author or the creator is such an integral part of a story. Or even, you know, when we talk about brands, like the brand owner, the company that owns the brand, the the, the sort of the creator of that content is so integral to the content that's created
1: you can only imagine like living in a world where there is really no sense of copyright and that it's okay to just use and reuse different parts the way we we would think about the author is quite different Mm. Uh, but nowadays of course that idea of ownership is really really strong so I don't know it's almost when I look back at you know, even these fairy tale authors, there seems to be a real sense of uh, community, community mm-hmm. of authorship. Uh, mm-hmm. And even, for example, there was a beautiful group of um, maybe six or more aristocratic French women uh, in that time I was telling you about in the 1700s. And they used to all meet up at each other's houses and Tell each other the stories they had written recently, and you know, share them so openly. And sometimes that would give someone else an idea. Uh, so there's really this idea of a, I don't know, like a very free-flowing community of of authors, which is something quite beautiful about that.
0: And quite similar, I think, to where we're starting to see the future ahead with democratization and a decentralization of content or of ideas even. Sort of this idea that we're sharing more things together. But I do wonder what impact that has on creators, the the idea creators, because creativity, so much of that is about individuality and expression of yourself as separate from a collective of breaking, like actively breaking away from that to create something that's differentiated. So if you know that that will then be cycled back into a decentralized system, do you think that that might impact creativity? You're right. It's kind of almost this pendulum has started to swing
1: back. Like we had this, you know, slightly more decentralized Model, and then it became all about individual ownership. So I feel like there's this push and pull between what is inside all of us, how much of that is being influenced by what is around us as well. But I completely understand as well that idea that, you know, I have created this, like I I want some sort of association with my identity and who I am.
0: And I really like what you said that you – almost forget that you are influenced by your community and influenced by your context. With that in mind, I was Googling some of the most famous storytellers of all time, which was a fun, fun Google search. And I was expecting to see, you know, Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, Aesop. Aesop was not on these lists, surprisingly. There were people like Oprah, Richard Branson, Bruce Springsteen. So that was really interesting because it made me think about that anybody can be a storyteller, I'm really curious who your favorite storyteller is, because I feel like maybe you would be giving this a more critical eye. I don't know if that's true. Who your favorite storyteller is and what is your favorite story?
1: Oh, my goodness. That is a very difficult one. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. I do really quite like the storytelling of Margaret Atwood. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I just find that she describes things in ways that just make me stop on the page while I'm reading and just think, oh, I never would have thought to describe something like that. Or, um, and she has a book thats I know she's very much known for a lot of, um, you know, quite dystopian stories, but I actually really like a story of her called cat's eye which is not at all supernatural or of the future she's quite brilliant in the way that she puts words together but I will also say that you know when it comes to reading I am not a snob (laughs) so I encourage people to read widely and not think that they have to stay to the you know highbrow classics
0: and take inspiration from the writing style as well. So obviously we read for a pleasure or for learning, but I like what you said, you know, pause and think about how you could implement some of the storytelling techniques as well in what you do from what you're reading. So Belinda, (laughs) Dr. Belinda Calderon. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I am in awe of you and your brain and your heart and everything that you are. So thank you so much for being on the show. I have one last question for you. What is your go-to when you're trying to push yourself to look outside?
1: It's actually getting outside of the, profe- the very professional context that I'm in with nonfiction writing and actually playing around with writing poems, which is something I do in my spare time, because I think the rules of poetry are so much looser and there's so much you can do with words that is really uh, boundary breaking and I love to remind myself of that so that my professional writing stays really
0: creative oh I love that that is such a great such a great example and such a great thing for everybody to be leveraging and thank you so much for for being on the show and for having a chat with me thank you for having me It was Margaret Atwood who said, all humans are storytellers by nature. It is built in the human plan, she said. It's a part of what makes us human, and I believe it can make us better humans. Whether it's by creating a compelling case for positive change, like how Belinda is leveraging it, or by making you think differently about what you hear and what you write. And this story is interactive, so please join the LinkedIn or Substack communities and check out looking-outside.com to share your perspective. And please do review, follow, and share the show so that it can reach more curious thinkers like yourself. So with that, I'm wrapping up season one of Looking Outside. I can't wait for you to hear the fresh thinking from the original minds on season two. Until then, thanks for listening and keep looking outside.